raindrop falls from the sun, it lands on this flower, and the flower is somehow invested with a magical power, and this decrepit woman happens upon the flower and is so captivated by it that she begins to sing to it, and in the course of singing to this flower that just sort of glows with an aura, her age falls away and she is renewed to vitality. And she sees that flower for its power and she's immediately amazed by what it can do. And so what does she do? She hides it. She hides it for herself. Hundreds of years later, she is still benefiting from the power of this flower that is invested with that magic. And every time she needs it, every time she has grown so old and weak and decrepit, she goes to it, sings to it, and again, she is renewed to strength and youth. But those hundreds of years later, a a kingdom has come forth, ruled by a king and a queen. And the queen has had um, uh, significant health issues for all of her life. And and there was no thought that they would ever have been able to conceive. But but remarkably, she was able to conceive. And the whole kingdom is astir with great hope that there might be an heir to this throne. And yet the, the queen mother begins to fall ill. And they all begin to wonder if the pregnancy is in jeopardy. And And there has been a legend of that day that there was a flower with certain power. And even though it was a legend to them, the king and the queen dispatched their guards to go seek the countryside to see if they might find it. And sure enough, they happen upon it. And there is the woman whose name is Gothel, who has benefited from it from centuries, aghast at what has become of her flower. The guards take it. They they take the, the nectar from it and they give it to the queen and the queen is healed and the baby is born. And soon after, they discover that that child's hair is invested with the same power as that flower had. You're wondering where this is in the Bible. It's not, actually. It's in a movie. It's in this movie called Tangled. Anybody ever see it? It's about 10 years old now. If you haven't seen it, um, you had your chance. This little child whose hair grows to great length. This is a retelling of the story of Rapunzel. And as an infant, that that woman who had benefited from centuries, she becomes aware that that child, that infant child, has that power. And so late in the night, she goes into the nursery and she steals the child and takes her away to her high tower and raises the child as her own. That child grows. Years pass. She's a teenager now and they call her Rapunzel. And this mother Gothel, this mother who pretends to be her true mother, takes care of her but also benefits from the hair and that power. And and every once in a while, Rapunzel asks if she might leave this high tower where she lives. And Mother Gothel says, oh, you don't want to go out into that wide world. It's a dangerous place. You'll be you'll be ridiculed and, and great harm will befall you. The safest place for you to be is right here in this tower under my watchful eye. It's a wonderful story. And as that story progresses, there's a thief whose name is Flynn. And he finds that tower one day and and scales it, thinking that he might add to his his collection of uh, valuable wares. And and there he is met by Rapunzel, who's a very resourceful and feisty and industrious girl. And, And she captures him and she ties him up in her hair. And suddenly she has a thought. She, she longs to, to see this whole wide world that she's only been told is dangerous and awful. And she thinks that maybe this, this little thief who's as resourceful as she is might be able to help her find a way into that world. And so she, she hatches a plan to invite her mother to go on a several days journey away. And then she convinces this thief, whose name is Flynn, to allow her to 
to finally put her feet on terra firma and to see this wide world. And I'm going to show you a clip from early in that film in which she manifests, Rapunzel manifests, this, this hilarious but rather pathetic sort of inner conflict as soon as she sets foot in this wider world. Watch this. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. I can't believe I did this. <laughs> Mother would be so furious. But that's okay. I mean, what she doesn't know won't kill her, right? Oh my gosh. This would kill her. This is so bad. I am a horrible daughter. I'm going back. I couldn't help but laugh the first time I saw it. Like, oh my gosh, this is it, right? <laughs> because our mothers have such a pull on us, right? They do. Let's just be honest. They do. They form us. They shape us. They have this influence. And it's, it's this uh, immeasurable sort of mystical power they have over us. And for good or for ill, they just do. And, and you see that writ large here in this story where she's kind of like, I am free. Oh gosh, what is it going to do to me, right? She just, she can't decide what's the right way. She, she longs. She longs to be free. She longs to be to see this water world, um, and yet she longs to be faithful to her mother, the only mother she's ever known. And there's this inner conflict, and and that's kind of the the whole subtext of the movie, which resonates with obviously children and adults alike because we all get it. Why? <laughs> why am I showing you a clip from this film and belaboring this film? I'll tell you why. Paul. In this letter to the churches of Galatia that we have been studying now for months, he has been longing for them, these Galatians, to really understand the essence of the gospel. And in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, he is going to allude to an ancient story of the Old Testament to illumine the point about the gospel that he's always trying to impress upon them. And he's going to refer to that story allegorically. That's the word he's going to use, allegorically, which has a more specific meaning now, but not a more broad meaning then. And all he means by that is that that story, that more ancient story, is going to figure in to what he's out to tell these Galatians again. That story has a place in their story. And the reason I'm using Tangled is because I think that movie, that story, illumines this Old Testament story that Paul is going to use, which is out to illumine the gospel. We need a more familiar story to help us understand a more unfamiliar story to help us understand what is the most important story. Because in both Tangled and in that Old Testament story, there are two people posing as mothers. And both those mothers have a story to tell. And both those mothers represent two very different ways of being oriented unto life. Of having a sort of fundamental, foundational understanding of who you are and how you are to live and what really matters and why you belong. And I think those two stories will then help to us to understand the gospel. We want to get it. As we grapple with the pull of our mothers, so we will always grapple with an understanding of what it means to live life freely. 
And if we don't get that, we don't understand the Lord. And therefore, you and I will always be tempted to live a life that is tangled. And the question we want to ask ourselves is, what does it mean? In what way are we tangled? But more importantly, how might we become untangled? In that story, it was all about how do you know who your who true mother is? Well, as you'll see, that story is as applicable to our story as you may never have imagined. We're in chapter 4, the very end of it. We'll start in verse 21. If you're able to stand, I wonder if you might stand to hear. Galatians 4, starting in verse 21. Tell me. You who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he was born according to the flesh, persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So, brothers, we're not children of the slave, but of the free woman. This is the allegorical word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were here with us last week, then you may remember that Paul gets really vulnerable with those to whom he's writing because he speaks to them not just as, as people in a, in a conversation, but as those for whom he has anguish. And he compared himself like almost like a midwife being in the pains of childbirth along with them that they might see or that he might see Christ formed in them like a child is formed in her mother's womb. He gets vulnerable in this passage. It is pretty much Paul's last-ditch effort to finish his argument. He will shift into a very different mode for the remainder of his letter, which I will kind of introduce to you at the end of this sermon. But here, in verses 21 through 31, he is making his last, the last plank of his case. And that last plank, he sort of cuts to the chase when he says in the very first verse this, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Do you not listen to the law? For the entirety of this letter, Paul has been harping on the law, the law of Moses, but a law that extends not only into the commands, but also into all the stories. And the question is, why does he do that? And I know we have to kind of repeat ourselves each week, but we have to kind of reorient ourselves to his line of thinking. He has come to non-Jews and said, guess what? You have been invited to follow the Lord of grace who sent his son, who is a savior and Lord who was himself a Jew. And so the question is, 
what do non-Jews, how do they relate to this law that was given originally to Jews? What shall they think of it? What is their responsibility to it? And the reason he has to answer that question is because other voices have come into those fledgling churches and said this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, if you're going to have any confidence that you belong to God, then you have to live fully like a Jew. You have to adopt wholesale, the whole kit and caboodle, whatever has been spoken of in the law of Moses. And if you don't, then your confidence will be at best shaky. And Paul was writing to challenge that notion with every fiber of his being. He has come to to fire a shot across the bow of the belief that if you want to have any confidence in you belonging to God, you have to live fully like a Jew. But he uses that phrase, those of you who desire to be under the law. That's the crux of it. What does that mean? Does it mean that, that Gentiles should think that maybe the law isn't good or that it's wise? No, he's not saying that. Are they to think that the law was just this, um, it, it gave off the impression of holiness, but it really doesn't retain that character, and therefore it was holiness for a time, but not forever? No, that's not what he's arguing either. Paul is saying, if you're living under law, it means that you are seeing and thinking of and re- having a relationship to the law in a particular way. And in that particular way, it's because you're drawing a particular connection to how you relate to the law and whether you relate to the Lord. Of how you adhere to what the law asks of you and whether you have any confidence in how you belong to God. John Calvin, you may have heard of him. He spoke of many things about the law. He gave great respect for the law. But he likened the law to a mirror. And he said this of the laws and institutes. The law is a kind of mirror. As in a mirror, we discover any stains upon our face so in the law we behold first our impotence. And by that meaning of the word, he means our inability to actually incarnate that law that we see. You ever in a hotel room and you go into the bathroom and you flip on the lights after a night and what is it? Fluorescent lights. And what do you see in the mirror? Every single detail of your face. Like, Where are the incandescent lights? I prefer those. Where's the mood lights? I prefer those. But the fluorescent lights, they shine everything. Every mole, every blemish, every scar, every pockmark. They're just revelatory. They tell a kind of truth. And John Calvin is saying, if you want the law, look at the law. That's what it does for you. It shines a searing light on the truth, not of your exterior, but of your interior. Fulgentius, and a theologian of, a, of many centuries past, he said this about the law. Law without grace can expose disease, but it cannot heal. It can reveal the wounds, but it does not administer the remedy. What does this all have to do with living under the law? If you want to live under the law as the Galatians were tempted to do, then this is what you're saying. To live under the law is to look at yourself as if in a mirror and the law tells you who you are and then you think to yourself, I must clean myself up to a degree that I might be acceptable enough to God that he will invite me to his ball. That's living under the law. 
to see yourself as the law reflects it and then to say it's in my power or it's in my hands to make myself beautiful or to, or to put it in, in Fulgentius's um, way of saying it's, it's, to, it's to look at the law and then to think to yourself, okay, it's diagnosed my condition. Now I must be my own remedy. It's done me the favor of helping me to see the truth, but now I must become my own doctor. Paul was warning the Galatians, that's how you are beginning to see the law. And that's what it means to live under it. And Paul was belaboring that point because you and I have to grasp what the law is if we're going to ever live freely before the Lord. What is his answer then to that temptation that you and I and Galatians feel all the time? He tells them a story. He tells them a story that they may or may not be familiar with, a story that's out to explain to them what's going on. And in doing that, you know what Paul's doing? He's doing jujitsu. Now, jujitsu didn't come out for 1,500 years, so I am speaking a bit anachronistically. I don't know anything about jujitsu except one thing it's not about deflecting, it's not about overpowering, it's about using the momentum of your adversary and redirecting it back upon them until you vanquish them by their own power. Paul is about to do that with the Galatians. When he says, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Like, hey, you want the law to be your guide? Fine, listen to all of it. Hear it. And when you hear it, you will find the holes in your own conclusions. What does that story say? What does it get to? He says, all you got to do is go to Genesis. Just go to Genesis between chapter 16 and 21, and you will hear my point. It's a foundational story. It's an enigmatic story. And to be quite honest, the way I think of that story, it is like a story covered in a layer of ash. Because nobody comes out of that story looking pretty. Everybody looks a little dirty. And you think to yourself, my Lord, you work with these people to outwork your plans? Maybe there's hope for us. What happens in that story? He uses its contours. You know the background to it because Paul has referred to it before. God makes a promise to Abraham. You heard that in our Old Testament reading from this morning, from Genesis 17. The promise was this. You're going to have a child, even at your age, you and Sarah. And that child will will be the beginning of a nation. And that nation will be blessed by me. And that nation, insofar as it will be blessed by me, will then become a blessing unto all nations. That's the promise I'm making you. You will have a child, even at your age. Okay, there's the promise. Boom. Years pass. No baby. No wonder. They're not exactly spring chickens. It's just the way it is. What do they do? Sarah, Abraham's wife, makes a little calculation. He made us a promise. Nothing's happened. What shall we deduce? It must be on us. We must take matters into our own hands. And so, though it is not soon to be in any second grade curriculum around here anytime soon, Sarah comes to Abraham and says, here's Hagar. She's our servant. (laughs) Must be what God intended. He said a baby was going to be born. It's not working for me. Let's find the most likely candidate for whom that might become true. And so Hagar gives birth to Ishmael, whose name means God 
who hears. And everybody must think, hooray, the promise has been fulfilled. We've had a baby. The nation will come. And you would think that the first person to rejoice would be Sarah. Apparently it's working, and my plan has worked. And what does Sarah do? She begins to despise Hagar and despise the child that has come forth from her. She resents her. She says, get out. Get out. I'm telling you, the story is covered in a layer of ash. More years pass. There is no baby. God reiterates that promise to Abraham, says, you're going to have a baby. And what does Sarah do? It says she laughs. Laughs not like, ha, 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 but laughs like, ha, ha, ha. Like, you know, I've heard everything. And God says to Sarah, um, you laughed. And Sarah says, no, I didn't. And God says, yes, you did. I'm God. I hear everything. <laughs> and sure enough, boom, Sarah conceives. Out comes Isaac, whose name literally means he laughs. In which case, we might say that God laughs last. Okay, bizarre story foundational to Israel's self-understanding. Why is Paul employing it to make his point here? Two sons are born, each to a different mother, but those two mothers brought forth those children and ostensibly brought forth fulfillment to that promise by two very different modes, two very different ways. One son, Ishmael, born by dint of sheer will by entire conventional wisdom. The other son, Isaac, born by no less than God's power and mercy, according to his promise. That's the allegory. Paul is saying that that story figures into our story. There's a, there's a connection between the two that you have to see the resonance thereof. Kind of like, you know, what Lewis does with Narnia and the gospel. You, you knew that, right? Yeah, Aslan, Jesus. What? <laughs> You're kidding me. Oh, my gosh. Go back and read it. You'll, you'll, you'll be blown away. Paul is saying that those two mothers and the modes by which they had their children represent two very different covenants, if you will. Two different kinds of being in allegiance to God. Two very different ways of obedience. The, the, the child that comes through Hagar is operating on this premise. Well, God, um, you made a promise. I suppose it's up to our resourcefulness to see it fulfilled. The other child, Isaac, is operating on this premise. Lord, you've made a promise. Man, this is all on you. It's all on you. They both have the same goal, but with vastly different ways of accomplishing that goal. And Paul is saying this, Oh, my Jewish brethren, Oh, those who memorize and seek to reflect the law and who pray daily and who um, have such a fastidious attention to all things lawful, that he respects, but he would also say to them, you are enslaved. You are enslaved because you think it is by means of your fastidious attention to the law that you have any confidence that you belong to God that they are looking to themselves, to their own resources, to belong to the Lord in the same way that Sarah was looking at Hagar to fulfill the promise. I guess this is on us. I guess we have to take matters into our own hands. 
It's on us to see it through, to get it done, to rescue ourselves from our own fruitlessness. That's the way of Hagar. And Paul is saying that's the way of his Jewish brethren right now. That's how they see themselves and their burden. But what Paul longs to see his Jewish brethren get, what Paul longs to see these fledgling Galatians recover, what Paul longs to see you and me hold fast to, is this idea. That you and I would look to our belonging to God as Abraham and Sarah were supposed to look to God from the very beginning. In other words, to believe that for his promise to be fulfilled, that we are his, it will be God's by God's mercy and power. His mercy and power that unites us to him and that through us he begins to fulfill his promise. Not taking matters into our own hands in, in order to secure God's favor. This Old Testament story, Paul says, is out to show us this. You have to put ultimate matters of God's favor in God's hands. That's how that old story matters. That's why it matters. We are like Rapunzel. We have this inner conflict. We, 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 we sometimes think to ourselves, you know, if I will just follow everything that he's told me to, if I will just be righteous in character and all of these things, then I can have a, a certain confidence that I belong to him because that sure feels good, and it should. But what happens when I fail it? In that mode of thinking, when I fail him, I begin to wonder if that favor is really mine, if that promise is really mine. And in that attempt in that attempt to take refuge in our efforts, we, we find that it really doesn't free us to anything. It just frees us to a kind of fear. And yet, quite honestly, on the flip side of it, I can tell you until you're blue in the face that your belonging to God does not depend on the extent to which you reflect his character. And we hear that and we think, yeah, nobody's like that. There are always strings attached. There are always expectations when somebody makes a promise to us. And so we think, if nobody else is like that, how can God be like that? And so we think whatever promise of freedom that we are hearing in the gospel, we think that's just a delusion. So what do we do? I have to be very careful in my comparison here of bringing up Tangled here to help illumine our moment. But look, um, the way of obedience to the, there is a way of obedience to the law that is not unlike living in Mother Gothel's tower entangled. And what I mean by that, Rapunzel, as she is a little girl, just sort of believes wholeheartedly that her false mother actually is her mother and loves her just because she loves her. But it becomes increasingly clear to Rapunzel over time that, that Mother Gothel's love and fidelity to Rapunzel has everything to do with what Rapunzel can deliver. It's about her hair. It's about the power. It's about the goods that she has. Gothel is her mother, quote, unquote, insofar as Rapunzel can deliver the goods. And yet in the course of the film, when Rapunzel finally does discover her true mother, she discovers that her true mother is her true mother just because she's her mother, period. 
She's her mother because she's her mother. She, her love for her is not on account of Rapunzel's looks or her prowess or her magic or her potential. She's just her mother because she's her mother. What does Paul say about those who trust God to belong to God like Abraham and Sarah were supposed to believe God from the beginning? He says, those who believe that are really part of a new citizenry, a citizenry that's part of a a true Jerusalem, a, a Jerusalem from above. And he says in verse 26, that Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. That way of relating to God is to understand who your true mother is as you understand who your true father is. Our mother comes to us by mercy, not by our meddling. And that's why Paul adds one other voice to corroborate his point. He brings in the prophet Isaiah, who is speaking to an Israel who is then in exile, and they're in exile for their disobedience, and therefore they are not showing forth the fruitfulness that God had intended for them. And therefore, Paul, or rather Isaiah, invokes the metaphor of barrenness to speak of Israel's present condition. But he also speaks to them of their future. And in that future, in Isaiah 54, he says this, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than those of one who has a husband. What's he mean? Even in Israel's so-called metaphorical barrenness, a day is coming when she will be fruitful and more fruitful than she could ever imagine. And so fruitful that those whom she will give birth to are those who are of the nations. Non-Jews. Gentiles. Gentiles will be part of that family. And guess what? In Paul's day, bingo. Those who are of Israel, like Paul, are telling them about a God who came for them in Christ. And now there are a lot more people born into that family of Israel, but with non-Jewish names. With a bunch of Gentile names. It's working. It's happening. Paul's, Paul's part or point in all of this is, is not to say that obedience doesn't matter. He's out to say that obedience by faith in God's promise matters. We belong to Him not by what we have to offer God in ourselves, but we belong to Him by what God has offered in His own heart, in His own work, in His own effort. Which means obedience by faith in the promise all comes down to this. You have to see the Lord and His law and His obedience in a particular way. How must we see them if we are to obey? Not as those, not, we have to see ourselves as those who must deliver the goods, but as those who trust in his mercy. And therefore, you and I have to see the Lord and law and obedience as one thing, beautiful. We must see him and who he is and what he's done and what he asks as beautiful, and I know beautiful is maybe an elastic term in our minds, but what it really refers to is excellence and wisdom and goodness and mercy all compiled into one. That's beautiful. That's 
what captivates our hearts. That's what puts a song in our lips. We must see the beauty of it. A few weeks ago at our congregational meeting, we made it pretty clear that there was one thing that was going to be unique about Grace Mills River in our life and ministry together for the next season of our life, which has been unique for its 25-year existence, and is that that we would never give up on pointing to the beauty. Because even in Psalm 27, when it says, One thing I've asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. If we don't see Him as beautiful, we will never see what He asks of us as worth our attention or our sacrifice or our conviction. And there was a voice that corroborates that and elaborated it to no end. And his name was Jonathan Edwards. And this is a long quote. Don't panic. I'll hold your hand. Ready? Here we go. God is the foundation and fountain of all being and all beauty, from whom all is perfectly derived and on whom all is more absolutely and perfectly dependent, of whom and through whom and to whom is all being and all perfection, and whose being and beauty is, as it were, the sum and comprehension of all existence and excellence. I'll stop there and explain what he's talking about. It's not hard. It's just he speaks in long sentences. I know. As there is no existence in this world apart from God, as there is no light in this universe apart from God's work, so there is no being and there is no beauty apart from what God has done. And therefore, as surely as you and I, there is nothing that exists here apart from that very large hot ball 93 million miles away from here. There is no being, there is no beauty apart from the God who is at the beginning of all things. And therefore, virtue, folks, virtue, whom we heard first Paul, Peter write to his churches of the diaspora in First Peter, virtue must always be tied to an understanding of God's beauty. And so a much shorter and simpler quote to explain what Jonathan Edwards meant comes from a guy named Gerald McDermott who said this, I realized afresh that he does not drive us by beauty, does not drive us by duty, but drives us by beauty, not by fear, but by irresistible attraction. Real life, real living before God, real obedience to him will always come by means of grasping the beauty of God, which leaves us then with the last two questions that have the same answer. The questions that we've implicitly asked in the the, the course of this sermon. How do we grasp that beauty? And can we ever be sure that we belong to God on the basis of what God alone has done? Those two questions have the same answer. And if you happen to have turned to Isaiah 54 in the passage I just read, if you'll only go down two more verses, then you hear Isaiah say this. Fear not, for you'll not be ashamed. Be not confounded. You'll not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. Israel's future is tied to them seeing God as not simply majestic, but as their husband. He betroths himself to them. He marries himself to them. He buys them back from whatever enslavement they find themselves in, which all is out to say, 
for that to happen, God's got to intervene. Isaiah and Israel will not be able to take matters into their own hands. God will have to take matters into his. He will have to work. In a way, not unlike how the movie Tangled culminates. Rapunzel eventually discovers who her real mother is and finds out that Mother Gothel is no mother and was never her mother. And Flynn Rider becomes aware of it too. And he heads to the castle and climbs up it out to rescue Rapunzel. And there he is mortally stabbed by Mother Gothel. Will die there bleeding out unless something happens. And Rapunzel says to Mother Gothel, let me heal him with my hair. Let me. And I promise I will be yours forever. In exchange for healing him, I will let myself be enslaved to you forever. And here's how it happens. In case you get any ideas about following us. (coughs) You you two! No, Rapunzel. I promise you have to trust me. No. Come on, just breathe. I can't let you do this. And I can't let you die. But if you do this, then you will die. Hey, it's gonna be all right. Rapunzel, wait. just say it ends poorly for Mother Gothel. Um, it's not so much the fall as the sudden stop. Um, Flynn, in his love for Rapunzel, refuses to let his life be spared so that she might be rescued from her enslavement to a way of obedience where it's all about what she can deliver of thinking that her only way is to be enslaved to thinking that it's on her to know of anything about a mother's love or affection. Folks, it's the gospel. Uh, The story of Rapunzel became history in Jesus because he refused to be spared the pains and the horrors of death in order that we might be liberated from our sin, from our death, and from the devil in hell That's the story. And that's why this story kicks. Why it resonates. What do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Um, I have an application that may seem rather odd. But it has everything to do with what we're going to do for the remainder of this letter. If, in fact, in the sacrifice 
of Jesus, there is love, and in that love, there is beauty. Then you and I are responsible for this when it comes to everything else that Paul will say to us and God will say to us by way of command. You and I are hereby commissioned to listen for the beauty in the implications of the gospel. Paul changes shifts gears in a big way starting next week in chapter 5. It's all about not just the argument for the gospel, but now the implications of the gospel. What is it? How shall we then live is Paul's point in the remainder of the letter. Here's the deal, folks. You can't just listen to those exhortations or implications and go, right, okay, that's what it looks like. That I'll imitate. It's not enough. It won't be enough. You and I have to wrestle with where the beauty is in what he tells of us. Because if Edwards is right that all true virtue is born of seeing the beauty in what he commands, then you and I have to search for it. Because I know to be true, I know it to be true that some of the things that Paul will ask us and some of the things that Jesus will ask us, our first instinct will say, that's not good. That's not beautiful. I don't want to forgive them. It hurts too much to forgive them. I will not do that. That is not beautiful. But God is calling us to see the beauty in that which at first glance might seem like it's beyond the pale. So for the remainder of this letter, folks, I'm asking you, I'm asking myself, that whatever commands he might lay before us, the law of Christ that he might lay before us, you and I have to ask ourselves, where is that beautiful at its core? That's our job. The Polish poet put it this way, Though the good is weak, beauty is very strong. And when people cease to believe that there is good and evil, only beauty will call to them and save them so that they will still know how to say, this is true and that is false. For whatever claims to goodness and holiness and righteousness we might find in the text, we will have to see its beauty if we were to find its virtue. That's our job. That's how we get untangled. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.